America has pretty much no means to actually steer the course of events within Russia itself, and even if it did, then using those means would come at a very high risk. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of America Explained. Today I'm going to talk about the incredible events that we saw in Russia over this past weekend and the implications that it has for the United States and for the war in Ukraine. I spent all of Saturday obsessively tracking the progress of the Wagner Group towards Moscow. It seemed like we were on the brink of a really, really seminal historical event happening. And then suddenly they just stopped and Yevgeny Prigozhin, the chief of the Wagner Group, announced that he was pulling his troops back from this march on Moscow. And it, it seemed, well, let's just say it seemed kind of anticlimactic. It seemed like we were building towards what would have been one of the most historic events that we'd lived through, a coup in Russia or some kind of civil war within Russia. Then the whole thing just seemed to kind of melt away. But of course it hasn't melted away. And what's just happened in Russia is going to have big consequences for Vladimir Putin's leadership, for the war in Ukraine and for global security. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. As always, thanks for listening to America Explained. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider checking out our newsletter. You can find a link to that in the show notes and you will get money off the newsletter. So the many posts on the newsletter are free. There's also a paid version that brings you premium content. If you use the link in that show notes, listeners to this podcast get a discount on the newsletter and you'll find in there content about all kinds of things, including this very topic that I'm talking about today. So please consider checking that out. It helps to support the podcast and makes it possible for me to keep making these podcasts and putting time into generating this content. So if you do check it out, then I really appreciate that. So last weekend, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the chief of the Wagner Group, launched this armed uprising against the Russian government. His forces, the Wagner Group, this private military company that he commands, left Ukraine, crossed the border into Russia, and then split into two columns. One of them went to Rostov-on-Don, which is Russia's military headquarters. It's the place that it runs the war in Ukraine out of, and the Wagner Group seized control of that city. The other column started speeding up the M4 motorway towards Moscow, and government forces were digging in, preparing to fight them. They blew up a bridge, they dug defensive positions, they were getting ready, you know, thinking that this was going to come to essentially a, a civil war, a clash between different military forces within Russia. On the way to Moscow, the Wagner Group shot down various Russian helicopters and aeroplanes, killing somewhere between a dozen and two dozen Russian pilots and an air crew. But then, just as his forces were approaching Moscow, Prigozhin called off the whole uprising. Apparently, he reached a deal with Putin. The deal says that Prigozhin will leave Russia, he'll go to Belarus, his fighters will get amnesty for their part in what just happened, some of them will be allowed to go to Belarus with Prigozhin if that's what they want to do. Others can join the regular Russian military. And the criminal case against Prigozhin himself is also going to be dropped. Now, it's not clear at this point that that deal is actually going to be followed, but that is anyway the, the outline of the deal that they reached. Now, it's not clear either what Prigozhin was hoping to accomplish with these actions. He claims now that he was basically just staging a spectacle in order to protest the fact that the Wagner Group had been effectively ordered 
order to disband by the Russian military and to be integrated into the Russian military has had an escalating conflict with the Russian military in recent months. This has been over how to prosecute the war in Ukraine. Basically, Prigozhin is very, very critical of the Russian military leadership. He says that it's not competent to run the war in Ukraine and, and that, you know, he would know how to do things better. So we could see this as the culmination of that dispute with the Russian military. Prigozhin's demand was that basically the defense minister and the chief general in charge of the war be sacked and other people be put in charge. But it's also possible that his aims were actually much broader than this and that he was hoping to win over other elements of the military or other elements of the security forces, plus perhaps people within the Kremlin, people around Putin, and to kind of bring this coalition together and force Putin from power. Now, once he failed, naturally now he claims that his aims were much narrower, but he must have known from the beginning that his actions were going to put him on this collision course with Putin and that this kind of much broader consequence of Putin actually been, you know, ejected from power might have happened. So it's not really clear either what he's going to do now that he's stood down. He's apparently supposed to go to Belarus, as I said, but Belarus and its president Lukashenko are heavily under Putin's influence, and it's not really clear if Prigozhin would be safe in Belarus. It seems like he definitely wouldn't be safe in Belarus. And if he's not safe, if he hasn't yet found some exit strategy from this situation for himself, then presumably there's a chance that he might strike back at the regime again in the future, that we might not have seen the last of this conflict between him and the Russian defense establishment and President Putin. These events also raise bigger questions about the durability and the strength of Putin's rule. Now, when you consider that this is a regime that generally punishes the slight this hint of dissent very, very harshly. You know, people in Russia get long prison sentences just for holding up signs protesting the war in Ukraine. For Putin to then be forced to back down and give concessions to and, and allow Prigozhin to remain free in the face of this kind of armed uprising which killed a dozen or more Russian service members, this is a really serious blow for Putin. He's angrily condemned Prigozhin he's called him a traitor, but he's also now kind of let him get away with it. And that seems weak. That seems like it might invite challenges from other actors within Russia who are dissatisfied with Putin himself or with various aspects of Russian policy and make them try to come forward and, and try to pose some kind of challenge to Putin. This piercing of Putin's aura of invulnerability also has people talking about Russia's political future, talking about whether there's going to be a post-Putin era coming along sooner than we may be expecting. Putin is now probably going to be pushed into making some changes to policy or to personnel. Perhaps he's going to engage in a wave of repression to try to prove that he's strong and to try to weed out other people who might be minded to challenge him. But that's going to create winners and losers within Russian politics, within the Russian system. And other people may decide to be emboldened and, and come forward and challenge him. So this opens up a period of uncertainty in Russian politics, which is unlike any that we've seen in a really, really long time. And it seems like we're going 
center enter an era of some flux and some change right now. So this war that Putin started has boomeranged right back on himself. And I think it's important to remember that this was just completely his choice to launch this illegal barbaric war in Ukraine. And now he's he's reaping the consequences of that. Now, this is also going to have implications for Russia's relations with the United States. If Russia is entering a period of flux, unpredictability, then that has consequences for the whole world. It has consequences for the West and, and particularly for the US. So we're going to come back and talk about that right after the break. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So far, American officials have been pretty restrained in their comments on events in Russia, and that's for a good reason. They know that an easy way for Putin to try to rally support for himself and create a distraction is to blame this uprising on the West. So Western officials want to be certain that they don't do anything to give Putin an opening to do that. They don't want him to be able to claim that American intelligence or Western intelligence was somehow behind what happened. So they were just really careful just to not even be seen as supporting the uprising against Putin, not giving him any opportunity to generate propaganda by saying this is the work of the West. And so during the crisis, there was a conference call between Western capitals, and this was one of the things that was discussed, that there was a need not to gloat or be seen to welcome the uprising. Another interesting piece here is that according to the media, Western intelligence had actually picked up indications that Wagner was up to something in the days before the uprising. Now, obviously that information will not have been passed to Putin by NATO. But it does mean that the US was able to steal itself for what was coming. America has pretty much no means to actually steer the course of events within Russia itself. And even if it did, then using those means would come at a very high risk. Putin is paranoid about the idea that the West is trying to overthrow him. And he would react extremely strongly to any hint that the US was actually involved in what was happening here. But during the crisis and in the immediate future, the US, even though it can't actually shape what happens in Russia, it needs to keep its eye on a number of possible dangerous consequences from this instability within Russia. Probably the first thing that I would point to as important is that there's a need to be aware of the possibility that Putin might stage some kind of major provocation or some kind of escalation in his conflict with Ukraine and the West in order to try to rally, you know, the population at home around him to create a distraction and have everyone talking again not about how weak Putin's rule is and you know how he stood down in the face of challenge but rather how much they hate the West and how the West is a threat to Russia and how we all have to come together and unite to meet that threat. So there's a chance that Putin might try to escalate the war in Ukraine somehow. You know, I think that the chance of him doing something like using a tactical nuclear weapon is small. I think that chance is always small in pretty much any scenario that we can think of, but small isn't the same as non-existent. And one of the scenarios that Western analysts have often pointed to 
through and said, well, this is when we have to worry about the possibility that Putin is going to use nuclear weapons, is if the stability of his regime is threatened. If his rule is threatened, if his personal safety is threatened, then that's when you can imagine him possibly reaching for extreme measures to try to do something to turn that situation around. So could he, for instance, stage a fake attack on Russian territory and claim that this was an attack that was carried out by Ukraine or by NATO? He could perhaps use some kind of tactical nuclear weapon within Ukraine itself. People have talked before about the idea of a demonstration explosion of a tactical nuclear weapon over the Black Sea or somewhere else. Now, I don't think these scenarios are likely, but they're not impossible. Other things that are perhaps a bit more likely, a bit more possible, which isn't to say that I think that they will happen, but just that they're things that we need to think about, is that Russia could, for instance, stage a large cyber attack in Europe, something that has some plausible deniability behind it, something that doesn't necessarily kill anybody or is fairly minor in its damage to, say, the European economy or to European security, but which would nevertheless enter this new phase of confrontation and escalation between the West and Russia. So this is a possibility. Now, I think that we only really need to start thinking about these possibilities more seriously if it seems that Putin's rule is really, really, really teetering, if he is facing an imminent threat have been thrown from office, but I was thinking about these things last Saturday, actually, as that armed column was racing towards Moscow, I was thinking, you know, if this really turns bad for Putin, what might he do to try and turn the situation around? And that was, you know, those were things that were on my mind. So I think if we face a situation like that again, then we have to worry about these possibilities of escalation. Another thing that needs careful consideration, particularly in the event of a dramatic kind of spiral downwards within Russia, if we enter some kind of civil war situation with a fracturing of the military into different factions, then it's very important to think about nuclear weapons control. Who has command and control of Russia's nuclear weapons? Who has command and control of the uranium in those nuclear weapons, right? So there's kind of the possibility, firstly, of just a rogue war of a nuclear weapon or the rogue use of a tactical nuclear weapon. But there's also the risk just of nuclear material getting into the wrong hands, of nuclear material being used in blackmail, right, or by terrorist groups. And over the last few decades, the US has put a lot of effort into helping Russia control its nuclear material, you know, decommission things that needed decommissioning, improve the security of its nuclear materials, and, and Russia's supposedly done a lot to increase the control that it has over its nuclear weapons. But when the military is falling apart, these things suddenly kind of come up in the air. And you can easily imagine that, right, so some local warlord in Russia who emerges, you know, so say Prigozhin had ended up in charge of like a swath of Russia around Rostov-on-Don, or some other general emerges as kind of the strongman in some part of Russia, like in the center or the east, that those people would 
would try to gain control of nuclear weapons that they were able to because they would be very excellent bargaining chips. They would be great ways to negotiate, not necessarily saying that I'm going to launch this nuclear weapon at you unless you do what I say, but saying either to Moscow or to the West, well, well, look here, you know, we have control of these nuclear weapons and it would be a real shame if they were to fall into the wrong hands. So maybe you need to come and give us money or give us support or give us some other kind of concessions in this febrile civil war situation. So getting control of these nuclear weapons and the consequences that the existence of those nuclear weapons have for power dynamics in some kind of post-Putin Russia is very, very important. Another thing that this crisis really drove home for me is the fact that there is pretty much no good post-Putin transition available within Russia. So, you know, Yevgeny Gozin overthrowing Vladimir Putin would not necessarily have been a net gain for the West or for Ukraine. Prigozhin actually represents nationalist right-wing forces who want to prosecute this war more effectively and more brutally than it has been prosecuted so far. The US has actually just today leaked some intelligence that it has, suggesting that another prominent general in Russia was also somehow involved in or had advanced knowledge of this mutiny by Wagner. That guy is also known as a real hardliner. He's known as someone who really wants to prosecute the war in Ukraine in a much more brutal fashion. So we have to realize that the constellation of people who were behind whatever Prigozhin was doing and the people that he was trying to appeal to were not people who it's necessarily like an improvement if they become in charge of Russia. And I think it's important to understand that that's probably, you know, as far as I, as someone who's not an expert in Russian politics, can tell from the outside, that's where the center of gravity in Russian politics is right now. If anything, it's to the right of Vladimir Putin. Now, um, Alexander Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who is currently in prison in Siberia, released a Twitter thread through his lawyers basically saying that if there is some kind of transition in Russia after Putin, then it has to be based on free elections. But I don't think that really that's a very likely scenario. Navalny's in prison. Russian liberals represent a fairly small percentage of the Russian population. So if 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 we are going to see Putin be weakened and perhaps fall from power, we have to not fall into the trap of thinking that what comes after him is necessarily going to be better. Now, I'm not saying the US should support Putin or back Putin, but I'm just saying that we have to be careful what we wish for and to realize that there's a real need to be prepared for what comes next. Now, it may be that the reason that the US leaked this intelligence about the hardline Russian general supposedly involved in this uprising is to discredit that person in the eyes of Vladimir Putin, lead that person to have, you know, his career cut short maybe, or to suffer from some kind of repression from Putin. And if so, that's like a smart use of intelligence. And that is a way that the US might try to shape what happens here through these intelligence disclosures. But it's not really a main way to actually like pick who is going to be the next ruler of Russia. There's a good chance that Putin just won't believe this intelligence because he'll say what well, comes from the US and they don't have my best interests at heart. So why would I believe what they say? So the US just really doesn't have any good means of affecting the post-Putin transition within Russia. And so that's going to go in all kind of unpredictable and, and perhaps unpleasant directions. 
Final thing to keep our eyes on here is the impact that this has on the fighting in Ukraine. Now, so far, it doesn't really seem to have too much of an impact. Ukraine has been making some small territorial gains, but it doesn't seem that the ability of Russian forces to fight at the front has really been affected by this. It was very careful to say that he was trying to do everything he could to make sure that the war could continue. But that being said, if there's going to be a prolonged period of infighting within Russian politics and between various elements of the Russian military, that can only be good for Ukraine, right? The Russian military commanders now have to worry about threats from two sides, in front of them and behind them. So the longer this continues and the worse it gets, it does present a military opportunity for Ukraine. Now, you can also see, though, that, I mean, so safe uprising had dragged on for days or even weeks, and it had started to really affect the capability of Russian combat forces in Ukraine. And if Ukraine had made big territorial gains as a result of that, you can see that that might have a rally around the flag effect within Russia itself. That might actually convince Russians to stop the infighting, band together, come back together, and focus on the war in Ukraine. So I think Ukraine has to be careful how it plays this. It can't give Russia a reason to pull together and come and fight back really hard against Ukraine. It has to be careful just to kind of give the Russians enough rope with which to hang their regime if that's the direction that things are going in. So that's like a tough balancing act for Ukraine to follow and really the point became moot this last Saturday because Prigozhin's uprising was over so quickly but we have to watch how that unfolds in the future. Now all of these things are going to be important if this instability in Russia continues, whether it's soon or whether it's later down the road. And even if no new major events follow, these events last weekend are only going to increase Putin's sense of vulnerability, increase his paranoia, and potentially increase his unpredictability in the future. And that really matters because change in Russia means change in one of the most important relationships that exists on the planet, which is this US-Russia relationship. And that's so important because if it goes wrong, if it leans to some kind of nuclear incident, it could lead to the end of human civilization itself. There's a small chance of that happening, but whenever you're talking about such a catastrophically important risk, it's important to talk about those small chances and find ways to minimize them. So it's really, really important for the whole world what happens within Russia. We're going to be back to talk about that topic again in the future when new events happen. So thanks so much for listening to America Explained. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do consider checking out that newsletter or leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform. That helps tell our algorithmic overlords that this is a good podcast and that other people should listen to it. So I really appreciate that too. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.